You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org. So glad y'all are here this morning as we reopen for in-person gatherings. So so thankful that you'd give give this a chance, give it a shot for you being a part of this. Um, for all those that joined us online in the first service and that we're here for first service, we're just thankful that we're all one house together in this. And so for this to work, it requires everybody to take responsibility of their own risk assessment, their own risk determination, and make the decision that's best for their household. And so that means we all need to honor each other. So if you, if you don't see somebody this morning that you normally see that during second service or over the next coming weeks, if you don't see somebody, um, please don't forget about them. Reach out to them, text them, call them, tell them that they're a part of this, hear what the Lord's speaking to them in this season, and edify one another. That's how this is going to work. We're really working hard, although we value we have a high value for in-person gatherings face-to-face because of our high value for authentic connection. Uh, we cannot demote our online gatherings in this season um, because of people's uh, potential for risk. And so um, please work with us and all of us just staying together, banding together in this season, reach out to people, uh, do, just like go the extra mile to connect with people. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We're going to start a new series, and this was meant to launch uh, our first summer series, because you guys know summer started. It's like there was no spring and summer. It's just summer, one kind of big mess. This is supposed to be the time of year we're like doing graduations and open houses, but we've all lost track of what time of year it is. Uh, we look outside, we look at, oh yeah, it's May. That's okay, it's May. And um, this was supposed to start our summer the students were supposed to call the students supposed to be dispersing uh, from Ames right now, but here we are, okay? It's Sprummer and Ames, and we are starting this series called Authentic Fire. It comes out of this value that we have as a church family for uh, authenticity. We have such a high value to experience that which is authentic. We don't play games. We're not putting on masks. We're not content with superficialities. We want the authentic power of God moving in and through our lives and in our church family. And at the heart of this series is that. And I believe there's lots at stake in in the days to come uh, for us to pursue the authentic power of God. And all the more in the midst of this crisis, all the more in the midst as we come out of this pandemic, which I promise you we will, there will be another side of this And we will come out on the other side of this moving forward as a church family, maybe different, but we're going to move forward going after all that God has for us, not hesitating in the least. And central to it is this need for the church to tap into the authentic power of the gospel. We're not playing games. We're not going to play religious games. And there's so much at stake, I believe. And so I felt like in order to kick off a series called Authentic Fire, it would be fitting for me to do an illustration using fire, amen? It's the inner pyro in all of us. Especially guys in this place, there's just a little bit of pyro in all of us. We're like, if I'm gonna do a series, seven week series on authentic fire, I gotta have an illustration with fire. So I'm gonna start a fire right up here on the stage for you. It's gonna be pretty intense. Get the fire extinguishers ready, please. There we go. There it is, folks. It's hot. Oh, it's getting warm up here. This is intense. I'm going to keep feeding the fire, see? That's why you don't do sermon illustrations with fire. 
Don't get too close though. Please just stay back, it's dangerous. It's warm up here, it's getting hot. If you get too close, you may begin to realize that this is fake. This is not a real fire. You begin to see through it. You begin to see that it's just blowing fabric. There's a, you can hear the sound of the silly fan. This is a very cheap fire from Amazon. This is not real. And way too often, the church of Jesus Christ settles for an inauthentic power in the four walls, and we kind of fool the world with these illusions of power. We say, yeah, don't, don't get too close. Just allow us to impress you with our words. Allow us to impress you with our semantics and our programs. But don't get too close, because if you peer behind the curtain, if you, if you get too close, you begin to see that it's not real at all. It's all just a bunch of games. It's all just a bunch of facades, a bunch of superficialities. And so I am, I am relentless in this desire for our church to press in and experience the authentic power of God. For us to stop making excuses. For us to truly believe that this word, we don't have to explain things away, but instead we press in and we say these promises are true for today. That we can experience the power of God as spoken about by Jesus Christ in our day, in our world. I'll take that sad fire down. I'll put it out. I'm putting it out. That's what's at stake though. Is either we're gonna play games We're going to throw all that out and we're going to press in and say, God, we want all that you have for us. We want the the power of God to move in our city. That's what's relevant to the world outside these walls is the power of God to transform, to set free, to restore, to truly redeem, to heal situations. And that's what Paul talked about in his epistles, in his letters. He said in these last days, this was his warning to his, his disciple, Timothy, He said, in these last days, people will put up with godliness that denies power. He also told the Corinthians, you know, I didn't come to you with mere words of wisdom of man, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So we can't settle with a godliness that denies power or just mere talk. We have to press in and contend for the power of God in our day. And we're unrelenting in that. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about a lot of issues that press into this. We're going to talk about signs and wonders and the reality that some pursue signs and wonders to the neglect of the wonder maker. But does that mean that we don't be a people that expect for signs and wonders in our midst? No, absolutely not. There's also a lot of abuse and error that happens with the prophetic Does that mean we're going to throw out the command of Paul that says eagerly desire to prophesy? We also see healing as the norm of the gospel. And Peter, the apostle Peter himself, points to that promise in the atonement that it's by his stripes that we are healed. We see a lot of wacky people out there proposing a lot of things in the name of healing, divine healing. Does that mean we're going to throw that out? Let's throw out all those precious promises and the robust promises that we have in the word of God regarding healing? Absolutely not. There's a horrendous message of error in in the Western church. Well, it's actually global now. The prosperity gospel that's run rampant over the last 40, 50 years. But does that mean we're going to adopt a gospel that promotes this, this idea of lack and deficiency and poverty? Absolutely not. We're going to press in and contend for the full gospel 
for the authentic gospel, the power of God in our day to move in our city. That's what's relevant to the world around us, to a world in need. And on the other side of this, on the other side of this crisis, on the other side of this pandemic, I promise you there's gonna be a world looking for answers. There's gonna be a world watching the church to see how we respond. They're already watching. But as people get, begin to merge into public life, they're gonna be watching to see how the church, what, what kind of answers the church actually has. This is what Leonard Ravenhill said 60 years ago. and I think it's all the more true today. The fact is that the church has been caught naked. She has not the power she talks of or else she's pitiably sick and cannot display that power. Bhakt Singh, the, the great Indian leader, said, you feel sorry for us in India because of our poverty and material things. We who know the Lord in India feel sorry for you in America because of your spiritual poverty. We are praying that the people in America might also come to church with a hunger for God and not merely a hunger to see some form of amusement or hear choirs or the voice of any man. So Michael L. Brown said, look at the American scene today. The reproach we suffer is not for the Messiah's sake. We're not scorned because of our militant stand. No, we are mocked because of our leader's sins, because of our failure to be holy and clean. Gospel and greed seem to go hand in hand, and our society equates evangelists with exploiter. Yet Jesus is the head of the body. How can this be? What kind of fruit has this salvation without sacrifice message produced? It's brought about a whole generation of double-minded believers, a multitude of worldly children of God. It's filled our church buildings without changing hearts. But a shaking is coming to the body. And while the no-cross gospel has drawn the big crowds, the numbers will not stand when the shaking arrives. And I believe that was spoken 20 years ago. I believe the shaking is happening. The shaking has begun in our day. There's a shaking happening. And how will, we, how will we respond? I've been so encouraged by the response of so many of you diving into God's word in these seasons of isolation and being stuck at home. You've been diving in and desiring to grow deep in these, in these seasons. I'm so encouraged by that. And I believe on the other side of this, we're gonna have a fiery, hot, authentic church that's just burning bright with the, the power of the gospel that's relevant to the hurting world around us. So we have such an opportunity in front of us. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter four. I want us to look at a passage of scripture, one of the, the many examples of Jesus confronting this godliness that denies the power. Jesus' ministry confront, confronting religious, dead religion, religiousness that's for show, showman's sake only. Our society is, is quickly realizing the massive holes that exist. And ultimately, Jesus is the only one that's going to fill those, those holes. The world is looking for answers. We find within the good news of Jesus Christ a message that proclaims something for those, those questions of the soul. So we're going to pursue the full gospel, the pure gospel, the authentic gospel in authentic fire. So this is towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Word is beginning to get out of his, of his miracles and his teaching. And he comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. In this small synagogue. Last December, I got to, I got to go to, or go to Israel and 
in the, in the area of Galilee, we went to a synagogue. They, they just found like 10 years ago in Magdala, so the hometown of Mary Magdalene. So in that, in that region, in this region, and it's a similar size synagogue, probably the synagogue's no bigger than this stage. So you can imagine Jesus walking into a, a small synagogue of people that he knows, people that he's grown up with. They know him. They watched him grow up and run around their neighborhoods. And he walks in to this scene. He says, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom. So this is what he did. This is what he did every Sabbath. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. It was like it was his turn. Hey, this is, this is Jesus, our home, the homeboy. He's, coming, he's back. He's going to read to us from the prophet Isaiah. He, he enrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So they, they, were, all, they were all tracking with him so far. They're like, this is nice. This is quaint. This is, this is beautiful. And something that a sharp turn takes place right now. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And Jesus reads their mail. He said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here now in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and they drove him out of the town and they brought him to the brow of the hill onto which, uh, on which the, their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. A quick turn of events here. They went from marveling at his gracious words to all of a sudden wanting to murder him. What in the world happened? Jesus revealed the, the, like the, the bankruptcy of religion without power, of dead religion, this godliness that denies power. And I believe that there's this, this growing need in, in our church right here in Ames, Iowa, to press in and believe for the authentic power of God, for, the, for this Jesus of power to be demonstrated in our neighborhoods, this Jesus of relevance to the world around us. Religion rejects that Jesus. So I believe here in this passage in Luke chapter four, there is a recipe for the inauthentic. Over the next several weeks, we're gonna be expounding on what the authentic fire of God looks like from a scriptural standpoint. So I wanna set it up. And at the end of this morning, I'm gonna talk about some guardrails that we're gonna to use to guide us in this conversation. But before we get there, I want us to just, I want the veil to be lifted on the, um, on the deception of religion how it's easily, it easily fools our hearts. So there's a recipe for the inauthentic here in Luke chapter four. And the first ingredient, in this recipe for the inauthentic is familiarity. 
that which is just normal and common, the, the everyday stuff of life, if we're not careful over time, can numb us to that which is sacred. The familiarity of Jesus coming into his hometown. This is Jesus. We know him. We know his parents. We, we know his siblings. This is what he always does. He always comes to synagogue. He's a, he's a good, faithful Jewish kid. That's who he is. And it's just another Sabbath. And it's just another Sabbath where this is the, this is the ordered reading of the day that we're going to read from the scroll of Isaiah. But it's this sense of familiarity that kind of lulls us into a sleepiness. It lulls us into accepting the status quo. It lulls us into predictability. Oh, I've been here. I've been to church. It's just another Sunday. It's just another week. Ames, I've lived here my entire life. <laughs> I've gone to church my entire life. I know the, I know the program. I know what the pastor's going to say. I know what's going to happen. We're going to do three songs, and then the person's going to get up and talk, then we're going to have a message, and we're all going to go home and eat our pot roast. That's what's going to happen. It's the, 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 the sleepiness that lulls us into accepting religion that denies the power of God. After a while, we can't imagine anything else. And you could definitely see that that existed here in Nazareth. We settle for something less, so much, so, so many times because of familiarity. And after a while, we begin to read scripture differently. And any hopes of a true move of God, like God really showing up in our, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our city, becomes a quaint pipe, pipe dream. Becomes something just for sermons. Just something to read about in a book. And we end up settling for something far less. Something detached from the need of our city. Something detached from God's best. A different gospel altogether. So the familiar is not all bad. Let me, let me reassure you. Rhythms can be helpful. Regular, regularity can be great, can be helpful. But we need to be cautious. We need to be careful. We need to be humble. That we don't allow familiarity to lull us into a sleepiness and allow us to settle for less than God's best. Second is this, scripture without expecting fulfillment. But this, is, this is dangerous. But this definitely existed here in Nazareth. It exists here today in the Western church as well. This acceptance of scripture, as long as we don't believe that it actually can happen today, in our day. But the reality is, this is a dangerous book. This is a dangerous book. The, the message in this book, and the, the message that Jesus proclaimed, it's a dangerous message that results in real life transformation, that re- results in, in real restoration, redemption, the miraculous, the power of God. And in the wrong hands, it can cause real damage. We have 2,000 years of church history to attest to that. People wield this book around, citing its claims and commands, you know, upon people's heads, upon people's brows, causing a lot of damage in the name of the letter of the law without actually pressing in and desiring the spirit of the law. It's scripture without expecting fulfillment. Scripture quoted with no expectation of its fulfillment is a dangerous matter. And so here in Nazareth, the people in this congregation, they were were cool with Jesus quoting Isaiah as long as he wasn't expecting for it actually to be fulfilled. 
As long as it stays in its, its nice compartment of these are words spoken in yesteryear by the prophet Isaiah. And it becomes just part of their, their religious um, system. If it stays in that compartment, we're good with it. But that's Phariseeism. Simple obedience, childlike faith. That is the way of the kingdom of God. That we read the promises of God and we believe that they can actually mean something for us today. In the heart cry of any child of God is, God, let it be here today. God, do it again. When we read the promises of God, when we, when we read these stories of the miraculous, we say, God, do it again today in our generation. In high school, I, I got to go to a, a Christian school, non-denominational Christian school. My older siblings, they struggled in public schools. They got into a lot of trouble, so my, my parents trying to redeem the last few of us, and they sent us to a Christian school. And um, I valued my time there. I really did. Academically, the school was amazing. But I, I, I began to be so interested by the, the curious and creative ways in which people would explain away the promises of God in Scripture. Many of the believers that, that, that went to school here would put themselves in the camp of the cessationists, meaning they, they believed that the gifts and the, the power of God ceased the time of the apostles or the closing of canon, whichever they choose, um, kind of arbitrarily. Many of them put, the, put themselves in that camp. And I, I always thought it was so fascinating as I sat through these Bible courses, how creatively these teachers would explain away the, the ability of God to do the miraculous in our generation. I mean, it's, it's, it was almost exhausting for me. And many times it takes that sort of creative, um, those sort of creative gymnastics in our scripture reading to explain away the actual fulfillment of scripture, the fulfillment of the promises of God in our generation. The way of a child of God is to take him at his word. When he commissions us to go and do these things, do these works that he's doing, that we actually take him at his word. That's the way of the child of God. So fire is beautiful. It's powerful, but it's also dangerous. That's why we tell kids don't play with fire because we need fire to be in the right hand. Someone who understands it, who is, is wise and humble enough to respect it. We don't just go around flinging around fire, play, playing with it, right? So it is with the word of God. We don't play around with this message that we've been entrusted with. We don't start just flinging it. That's when people get hurt. Instead, we humbly say, God, allow this to be relevant to our city. Oh, God, allow this word to actually come to, to, come to pass, come to bear in our neighborhoods, in my family. This is the prayer for my own family, my own kids. My heart is that my kids would have an encounter with God for themselves, an encounter with the, the authentic gospel for themselves. Fire is beautiful and powerful, but it's also dangerous. That's why I, I vow to you that I will never do a sermon illustration with real fire, okay? My dad is a firefighter. For 30 years, my dad's been a firefighter, and uh, he would kill me if I did a sermon illustration with fire. So I will stick to my, my cheesy uh, fake fire here. I remember a, um, let's let you all awe at the fire here. I remember growing up in church, I grew up in church, 
I grew up in the 90s where like sermon illustrations were fire were, with fire were like, they were commonplace. Like that was like the cool thing to do. Every youth pastor would do a sermon illustration with real fire. I remember my youth pastor, he's now my father-in-law. Uh, he's probably listening today. Um, they, they did a sermon illustration where they were burning, burning pieces of paper. People would write their sins on the piece of paper and then they would burn the paper and throw it at the foot of the cross. Sounds great until they start to accumulate, right? And they happened to use a paper box, like a cardboard box. So it was, very quickly, this started to get out of hand. And so I remember the middle school pastor, who's not my father-in-law, but a great guy, this long flowing mullet. He grabbed the, he grabbed the cardboard box as it was starting to get out of control. He grabbed it and he ran out the back of the youth center with his you know, flowing locks behind him. He chucked it off the balcony of the youth center into the, the, the snow below. But we don't play with fire, Right. Fire is no laughing matter. It's serious, it's powerful, it's beautiful, but we don't play games. Whoops, we don't play games with fire. Fire is dangerous. So it is with God's word, with the promises of God. This is a dangerous book, and we approach it with a sense of reverence, saying, God, let it be in our day. We don't want people to get hurt. We don't, people, we don't want people to, to misunderstand who God is. We want them to experience him for, them, for themselves. So third is this, third ingredient in this recipe for the inauthentic is acceptance of an impersonal gospel. I would say the, the greatest, um, the greatest turn of events here, or I guess the greatest uh, motivator in the turning of events here in uh, Luke chapter four is this idea that the gospel all of a sudden, the message that Jesus proclaimed all of a sudden became personal because Jesus reads their mail. Verse 22, they're, they're saying, oh, this is amazing. This is beautiful. Jesus, he's so eloquent. I love the words that he's saying. But he's, he's reading these poetic words of, of Isaiah, and it's so beautiful. And it just kind of fits in like the, the, the quintessential picture of, of religion. Like we sit in our chairs, we listen to this eloquent speech, and it tickles our ears, and we feel good about it until Jesus reads their mail. <laughs> and in verse 28, it says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and they drove him out of the town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But Jesus miraculously escapes. What in the world happened? Jesus' message all of a sudden became very personal. Jesus began to point them to, to ancient, his, ancient history, to Israel's history, and point to this fact that there, there, there was this unrelenting desire in them to always be shown more of a sign, more of a demonstration of God's power when it's already been given to them. And here he is standing literally, the Messiah is standing before them, and yet they still do not rec- recognize the gospel of the kingdom. So there's this like un, unquenching desire in them for more. I need, I need more proof. I need more demonstration. I need another sign. And all of a sudden, this wrathful response results. So the message of Jesus all of a sudden became personal. Oh, so you, this message is for me. This, you're, you're, you're calling out my religious righteous, you know, self-righteousness. And we see that today in the American gospel. We see a gospel that's accepted as a creed, as doctrine, as a religious system as long as it doesn't mean that I'm actually crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it's Christ that lives in me. As long as it means that I don't have to change anything about my life. As long as I don't have to be the one who 
denies myself, takes up my cross and follows Jesus in radical obedience. That's when it becomes offensive, when it becomes personal. But I can tell you, being in the trenches and on a weekly basis, I sit with individuals who they've grown up around church. They're familiar with Christianity. They're they're familiar with religion. But so many of them are lost in addictions. They're struggling through marital infidelity. They're, They're struggling through despair. And the answer is not more religion. The answer is not more fake fire. I don't sit them on my couch and and tell them, hey, I I got a really pretty sermon for you to impress you with these gracious words. I don't have another pretty song to sing for you. No, what I do is I press them in to experience God for themselves. What they need is the power of God to transform them from the inside out, not more change on the outside that somehow will seep into the inner parts of their heart. They need transformation from the inside out. And that is the answer for our city. It's transformation from the inside out. Not impersonally through the forms of religion. And so I long to see every person come face to face with the goodness of God. For every person to see him for who he is. For everyone to see that he really is good. That his news is good. And it means something for them personally. That's my prayer for my own kids. I don't want them to have a faith vicariously through me vicariously through the people they grew up around. I want them to experience God for themselves, for them to encounter the goodness of God and for them to surrender everything to him. That's what's at stake, folks. And I grew up in church, but at the same time, I saw brokenness in the home. I saw drunkenness and I saw drug abuse. And I quickly saw the bankruptcy in this whole religious system if we're just gonna play games. And I quickly began to experience for myself the power of God. I experienced for myself the goodness of God. And that's why I'm unrelenting in this pursuit of the authentic fire of God. Fourth ingredient for this recipe of the inauthentic is recognizing power in history, but not in the present. You see, Jesus uses their own history as an indictment of their lack He points them to Elijah and Elisha. He knows that they'll accept Elijah and Elisha. I mean, they're like the superheroes for them as as good Jewish people. And they accept Elijah and Elisha. But if Jesus puts them in in the camp of all the widows that that didn't accept Elijah Elijah, or all the, the lepers that didn't want to be healed by Elisha, then all of a sudden, whoa, you've gone too far. But that's the power of history. The power of history becomes an indictment on our lack. How in the world can we say God did it yesteryear, but he can't do it again? It's so fascinating to me, all the critics of revival. In any move of God, there are a plethora of voices that speak out against moves of God. You look through history, the moves of God of prior generations, there's always a plethora of critics. But the reality is you don't know any of their names because they weren't contending for anything. They were contending to, to maintain the status quo. They were, they were fighting to maintain their, their religious boxes. And revival always breaks through those boxes into new territories, experiencing the power of God in their generation. The reality is revivals have formed universities, 
hospitals and denominations. But pretty much all of those institutions today, they'll revere their history, but they won't want any part of the power of God today. They say, we'll take it, we'll respect it in history, we'll revere it as a piece of history and a part of our formation, but we don't want, we don't want to touch the authentic power of God with a 12-foot pole. You know, Harvard's original, the longest standing university in America, origin, uh, Harvard's original statement of purpose for its students was this, to be plainly instructed, to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards is one of the great you know, fathers of revival and uh, was a third president of Princeton. And Princeton was the direct result of the first great awakening. There's obviously the, the example of the, the Methodist church, which resulted from the, the first great awakening and the leadership of John Wesley and Charles Wesley. And John Wesley, you know, prophetically said, which I mean, this is an indictment to the Methodist church today, but he says, what one church tolerates the next generation will embrace. He also said, Let your, or light yourself on fire with passion and people will come from miles to watch you burn. It was his way of life. But how many of those, those institutions, they put history in a compartment, they'll respect it, they'll revere it, but they say, we don't want that to happen again in our generation. We don't want the power of God to actually be relevant to a world in need, to the lost to the needy. So that's what took place here in Luke chapter four. I know this is difficult. And you may be saying, Drew, why are you preaching this on a Sunday, first Sunday back? This is supposed to be like encouraging, upbeat message. This is what's on my heart. I believe in the days to come, we're gonna have to navigate issues, difficult issues. And the world's gonna be looking for answers. So rather than us just playing games, maintaining the status quo, I say let's press in and experience the power of God. So in these final few minutes, I just I want to change course to just kind of preview the next few weeks. We're gonna we're gonna talk about signs and wonders and healing and the prophetic and um, the prosperity gospel. Obviously, as error, not as as something good. Um, and so what are some guide rails that will guide this conversation? Guardrails that will guide this conversation. Here, here are two that we're going to continue to come back to. Two guardrails are going to help us in talking about these things in a biblical way. One is this. Jesus will be our affection. Things get out of whack and they get weird quick. When Jesus gets put set when Jesus gets set aside, when when anything else becomes central or our priority. But when Jesus is our prize, when he is the only thing that satisfies us, that's what makes this word actually come alive. And that's what sets us on fire for effectiveness in this world. Because then out in the world, we're not pointing people towards a building or a program or our awesome worship team of which we have the best. But instead, we're pointing him to this one in whom we are just infatuated with. This, this one who's transformed our lives and therefore, our goal is not accuracy or precision of doctrine. And we don't get pulled into all the, the flaky debates on doctrine, but instead, we just want more of Jesus. You see, the problem with getting pulled into the weeds of doctrinal debates is so often 
in a desire to avoid error, we're gonna talk a lot about this in the weeks to come. Oftentimes in, a, in an attempt to avoid error of one type, you embrace an error of a different type, which is uh, one of the common problems in most of the, the issues that we're gonna talk about in the weeks to come. In a desire to avoid excesses in pursuing divine healing, they, they embrace an error of a different type, which is just this idea that God doesn't heal. If people are gonna use it abusively, let's just throw it out. And then it, in, in, in doing that, you have to tear out most of the New Testament. So we're not going to do that. Jesus is going to be our affection. And we want all that he has for us. We want all that he paid for for us. In my life, and I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to sit here and, and take upon myself the burden to explain other people's excesses. I don't want this godliness that denies the power. It's Jesus that satisfies us. And that's what this world needs. It's the fullness of Jesus, Christ crucified, the power of God, this one who comes to baptize the Holy Spirit and fire. He's our affection. He's our king. He's our healer. He's our purpose. He's our everything. It's King Jesus. And so maturity in the Christian life is meant to be greater and greater love for him. That's what it looks like. You want to know what it looks like to grow old with Jesus? The end of your days, you should be more in love with him than ever before. Psalm 27, this one thing I desire, this one thing I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's King David, who had everything at his fingertips, and yet that one thing he was infatuated with, just being with God. So Jesus will be our affection, and that's gonna guide our conversation in the days to come. Second guardrail will be this. Jesus will be our example. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and he came to demonstrate a kingdom of which he invites us into. He invites us into the kingdom. And he doesn't just talk about a kingdom, a kingdom to come, but he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he invites us into it and commissions us as, a, as ambassadors of this kingdom. So we, we look at the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we use them as a, as a template of how to live. Jesus says, you'll do these works and you'll do even greater works. Say, God, I want to know your ways. I want to be so obedient to the Father. Jesus will be our example. We're going to follow King Jesus. When he says go, we're going to go. When he says signs and wonders will follow those who believe, we're going, to, we're going to take him at his word. When he says lay your hands on the sick so they will be healed, we're going to do it. Jesus will be our example. And therefore, we don't get pulled into religious games. You can see throughout the Gospels how masterfully Jesus did not get pulled into the religious games of the Pharisees. And I'm going I'm to break it to you. There are many in our city that want to ma maintain the religious games. They, they want what's comfortable. They want what's predictable. They don't want transformation in our city. That's going to be uncomfortable. If we contend for breakthrough in our city, it's going to be uncomfortable. And many won't accept it. But Jesus wasn't tied to methods. He was obedient to the Father. Whatever the Father told him to do, he did. So this is how I want us to end. This is meant to be a very inconclusive message because it's setting us up for the weeks to come. I want us to respond to God in closing. I asked the worship team to, I asked the worship team to sing this song when he walks into the room when you walk into the room. Um, and I want us to respond to Jesus.
right now. Over the next few weeks, I believe God's gonna stretch us. He's gonna, he's gonna push us because he wants what's best for our church. He wants, he has a, he's a greater love for our city than we do. And he wants the hurting, the broken, the disenfranchised, the addicted. He wants them to experience the goodness of his kingdom. But he's looking for a people. He's looking for a people that are, that are willing to go there with him, that are willing to be stretched, willing to be uncomfortable, willing to set aside that which is predictable and comfortable and press into this authentic fire of God. So I want us to respond right now to the Lord. So if you want to go there with me, would you, would you stand to your feet right now? I want us to pray a prayer of surrender to the Lord over the next few weeks. And just respond to the Lord right now in your own way. Everyone joining us on, online, Facebook, YouTube, just respond to God right now. You are a part of this. Yes, God. Or oh, as a church family, first Sunday back, reopening in-person gatherings. I don't believe it's coincidence that you've, you've arranged, you know, I've been planning this message for for months that we would, May 17th, we'd start this. And, and I don't think it's coincidence. You're setting us up for something in the days to come. We're, just, we're on a collision course, a trajectory to see the power of God displayed in our city like never before. So we're contending for God. We're unrelenting in our desire to see you move in our day, in our generation, Lord. Lord, and I sacrifice anything, everything for God. Right now, Lord. We don't care what people say. We don't care about people's opinions. We surrender to you, Lord Jesus. We want the power of God. We want the promises of God to be seen and realized and fulfilled in our day. We want to begin to take you at your word. Lord, any performance, posturing, positioning, uh, you know, in terms of religious games, Lord, we set that aside right now. We repent of it. We're not playing games, Lord. There's too much at stake. We need you, God. And you are our sole affection. You are our sole desire. You're all that we need. You are the head of this church and we need you to be demonstrated. We need you to be represented in our city well. So we submit ourselves to you fully, King Jesus. You are everything. If you're here with us this morning, online or in person, and you need to surrender your life to Christ, this would be a perfect time to do that. This would be the time to, to say, Jesus, I come to the end of myself. And I surrender all that I am to you. No turning back. I need a transformation from the inside out. So right now I recognize you as crucified Christ, personal Savior. My need for you is huge. It's been evident to me. 
that I need a savior. I can't clean myself up. So right now I surrender all that I am to you, King Jesus. No turning back. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at livethemessage.org.